Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. A nice-looking day shaping up here in Kamloops. Happy Monday, and welcome to the Woodford Show. Got lots to talk about today. We'll talk about uh, a little bit of politics, uh, the Nanaimo by-election. People with their vote, pretty crucial. Happens on Wednesday. Also, uh, still more developments in that spending controversy, so we'll talk about that with Hamish Telford. Uh, we'll also talk about wildfires and some sort of natural phenomenon that's, that they're sort of spurring as we look at sort of the climate change front, and then we'll end the show talking about a rather interesting film talking about the switch to what's called a collaborative economy. We'll learn about that. But first, some troubling signs on the debt front. Pleasure to be joined by the Senior Vice President of Sands and Associates, Blair Manton. Blair, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. My pleasure to be here. So uh, you guys have done a consumer debt study, I believe, what is that, your sixth uh, one you've done so far? Yeah, exactly. Our yeah. annual study we've just released it this morning. Excellent. So uh, things always sort of troubling on the debt front. Uh, we followed this story for a number of years, and it seems like Canadians are uh, kind of borrowing and, and using their credit cards to a degree we've not seen before. But uh, your latest study revealed some other troubling signs at, at a younger age group. What's going on? Well, yeah, I think you're completely right in that for every year that we've done this study, the picture seems to get a little bit more bleak and that people have more and more debt and some people are dealing with, but a lot of people are are suffering. And what we really saw this year was was things jumped out about to us uh, about the millennial demographic. So, um, you know, the age about 18 to 39 or so for the older millennials. Uh, but we found two big things. You know, one um, is that there was a real pressure on this demographic to spend money on things and events, uh, way more so than other demographics graphics, about three times the prevalence of this pressure. And we think a lot of that has to do with social media um, and, you know, living your life online. So that was one was the pressure on events. But the other was this group just didn't know where to get help. About 40% of the people we surveyed, they just suffered for years because they didn't know where they could reach out to to actually get some help with their debts. Now, that's interesting, especially on the sort of uh, peer pressure front. I, I noticed in your study it says that uh, the majority of those surveyed had between 25000 and $49,000 worth of debt. And then you say excluding car loans and mortgages. Uh, what the hell are they, what are they, what are they buying that has that much debt? In I mean, I, credit cards, I assume, is, is in the mix there, but that wouldn't account for $50,000 worth of debt, would it? Well, in some cases it does, and and sometimes you know you sit across the table from somebody and and you realize that yeah for you know twenty five fifty thirty thousand dollars whatever of credit card debt they got nothing to show from it it's just been you know from consumption or a budgetary you know budgetary imbalance each month uh, but for the most part there's a lot of things in that number so there is credit card debt there's also student loans which can be significant for a number of folks um, also income taxes so um, you know for the average T four employee that's usually not significant but if you're a business owner there could be some GST, there could be some income tax that accumulates over time. Um, so it's a number that includes a lot of things, but definitely the vast majority of it is credit card debt. And for the most part, that's the bad type of debt and that the benefit's all gone. You didn't go into credit card debt to buy an asset. Usually you went into credit card debt for consumption or just you know to fill the gap on a monthly basis because your income just isn't enough. Yeah. It, should we look at, at, at sort of um, reassessing how we deal with credit cards for people at a younger age, and I'm going to speak from experience here because um, I had a credit card at the $10,000 limit on it when I was in my early 20s, and that thing was max, and that took me forever to get out from under. So, I mean, I was young and dumb. Uh, should we look at either educating young people about finances and debt management, or should there be rules around what kind of credit you can carry at a certain age? 
Well, you know, I think yes is the answer on, on both of those. And, um, you know, I'm not that far for, removed from a university campus, but I remember when I was there on, on Frosh Week that, you know, all the banks were there and they were giving out T-shirts and blankets and school-branded stuff if you'd sign up for their credit card offer. So it seems to be there's this idea with, with students that you need to build credit really young, have the solid credit rating, which the actual truth is you could go through a bankruptcy and in the matter of two or three years rebuild your credit good enough to get a mortgage. So it's not that you need 10 or 15 years of great credit history. So what often happens is kids get accustomed to using, um, you know, credit on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I'm of the view that if you called a credit card a debt card, you'd be a lot more apt, a lot more accurate, because all you're doing is building debt over time. And we tend to view credit as a positive thing, you know, a credit rating and give me the credit for this, so on and so forth. Uh, But really, a credit card just ends up putting a lot of young people in debt very early on. How do they deal with it? I mean, uh, how do they, if you find yourself, you know, you're 22, 23, you're 26, whatever the age is, uh, and you're carrying a ton of credit card debt, and you're clearly now looking in the mirror and saying, this is out of control. What are the options out there? Well, the first thing you got to do, and there's the old adage, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. Um, so you got to really understand, you know, why did this debt arise? And if it's the case that you've got, um, you're spending more money each month than what you're bringing in, you've got to deal with that issue first. Um, if it's the case that, you know, you are able to live on a cash positive basis other than the debt, then there are great options that are out there. One that most people don't know about, but two thirds of the people in our survey, this is what they actually employed, is called a consumer proposal. And the way that works is instead of making your minimum payments for the next, you know, 10, 20 years and paying off all the debt plus interest under a consumer proposal. By law, all of the interest stops and then you repay what you can afford over a period of just up to five years and often a bit shorter than that. So most people, they end up paying back about a third of their debt with no interest and no cost on top of that. So that's a great option if someone is in their, you know, really at any point in life, but definitely if they're starting off in their financial future and they're worried they've got a bit of, a, you know, the wrong track, you could do a consumer proposal stop the bleeding, pay things off. You didn't have to go into bankruptcy, but you got yourself back to zero. How does that work if you're carrying like a bunch of credit cards and that's the problem? You go into a consumer proposal and you're still living on the credit cards. I assume that's not good. Or do you do you give those up? How does that work? You absolutely you give them up when you sign the proposal. So that's basically the cost of going through something like this is right off the bat, you got to stop borrowing. So you got to really sort out your monthly obligations and make sure you can pay them and also make sure you can pay a proposal payment. But, you know, typically what you've been paying on your interest on your credit cards is far Far more than what you pay on a consumer proposal. So usually that, that tends to work. But the day you sign a consumer proposal, you turn in your credit cards and then you start rebuilding your credit. And usually after a couple of years, um, you start with a secured credit card. You put a deposit down, you get a card with a lower limit. And those cards help to build your credit rating again for the future. And I encourage all of my clients to really think of a credit rating as a means to an end. So what is the goal they're looking for? And if it's a mortgage, well, using a secured credit card and focusing on saving that down payment that's going to get you there. Um, if you don't deal with your debt problem, you'll never get a mortgage because you can't save a down payment. Any money that you save, the bank can take from you if you don't pay your credit card bill. Yeah, and you're starting off on a wrong foot. And I guess that's, that's at the heart of sort of the warning flags that you see when you see this kind of out-of-control debt in the 18 to 39 age group. Yeah, well, definitely. The biggest warning sign that that I see is, you know, people feel stressed. They know that they're going in the wrong direction. You know, as much as we hide our head in the sand sometimes, you know, people do open their statements and they see, hey, we're on the 40-year plan to pay this off. Um, So people start to feel the stress. They start to see that their minimum payments just aren't getting them anywhere.
So as we as we look down the road at this this uh, this debt problem that you say is is just getting worse, and and you know I think there's <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. Every sign every sign we've seen, every study we've seen shows that we are uh, getting more and more into debt. Um, what's the worry over the long term? I mean, is it is it an economic failing and suddenly things get dynamically worse? Is it a rise in interest rates and suddenly the problem compounds itself? What's the concern over the long run? Well, I think it depends on how long run we're looking. So, you know, the long run is that we've got a lot of folks who are going to be you know, going into retirement still with debt, still accumulating debt, and that's what we've seen as the fastest growing demographic that we've got as senior citizens. Um, so, you know, folks over 55 or 60 years old that never expected to visit a trustee because they have a debt problem. So I think that the long run is you've got folks that unfortunately aren't able to build wealth because they're, they're too much in debt. Um, in the short term, absolutely, interest rates have had an impact, and, you know, not much on credit cards because credit cards are already so divorced from you know two or three percent prime rate compared to 20 percent credit card rate they're already not in the same ballpark but on things like home equity lines of credit on variable rate mortgages i have clients in my office just about every week now who've overextended themselves on the house and they pulled out money for renovations and now the equity lines are more expensive and they found the value of the house isn't such that they could sell and make their money back so they feel very constrained is this is there an education component to this? Do we do enough at a young age in an actual institutional setting, uh, school, whatever, to teach young people about how to manage their money? I didn't take any courses when I was in high school and or even to college. Uh, should we be doing something like that? Oh, we absolutely need to do a better job. I think what we do now is just completely pitiful. Um, so, you know, I, I went to business school and I had no idea about, you know, consumer proposals, personal bankruptcy. It was only once I started working professionally that I learned how I could actually deal with the debt problem. But again, going back to university, all the banks were there on campus pushing credit, so on and so forth. Um, I have a friend of mine who's studying to become a realtor and I wanted to look at her textbook and 700 pages. There's not one thing about, by the way, you are typically self-employed. You're going to have to pay tax. And realtors are one of the number one um, occupations that I see where they just get behind on their tax obligations. So I think in many ways we don't do a good job of financial education. And part of the, my job that I love is anybody that files a consumer proposal, I do two financial counseling sessions and just to see people's eyes open, they say, okay, so this is how credit works. This is how my rating works. And from an unbiased point of view, they can really understand things as opposed to getting information from a bank where typically their objectives are different than yours. Yeah, it just seems a little uh, I don't know if sad's the word, but uh, it seems a little backwards that we're doing it after they've been into trouble, that education component, that perhaps if we'd done it before, they wouldn't end up in the situation they're in. Oh, I, I fully agree with you. It's, at least it's coming at some point. But, but yeah, if you were to start earlier and, you know, just inform people, it's not that complicated, debt and credit and saving and investing, um, and you really don't need to take the first credit card that's offered to you. There, there's a lot that could be avoided, I think, with more education. Okay. Uh, final word to you, Blair. Uh, obviously a, a big problem out there, and it's moving down into younger and younger age groups. Uh, your advice to anybody who's listening who's struggling with debt? You know, I think people just need to know that they're not alone. Um, debt is a modern-day problem for a lot of individuals, and oftentimes it's out of their control. You know, it's a job loss, medical issue, or something like that. So there is help that's out there. Look for a licensed insolvency trustee. Every trustee in Canada will offer a free consultation to help you get back on your feet. Blair, thanks for taking some time. Really appreciate this important topic. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Blair Matney, Senior Vice President with Sands & Associates. Their latest consumer debt study showing a worrying sign that debt is increasing for young people aged 18 to 39. Not good. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, dive into politics with Hamish Telford. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now.
You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Lots going on on the political front, including a very, very crucial by-election happens day after tomorrow. Uh, pleasure to welcome to the program the Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Fraser Valley, Hamish Telford. Hamish, how are you? Very well, thank you, Shane. I believe Happy New Year still applies since I haven't talked to you yet this year. Thank you. To you as well. <laughs> okay, Hamish, why don't we start there with the Nanaimo by-election. I want to talk to you about the stuff swirling around the clerk as well in a minute. But uh, we have an important, uh, an interesting situation shaping up in Nanaimo with Leonard Krogh, now the mayor, leaving the seat open. we got a bunch of people vying for that seat. Uh, polls seem to show something of a tight race between the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, as you look at this particular race, do you think uh, the NDP should be concerned or how you look at it and how you seeing things play out? Governments in British Columbia can never take by-elections for granted, even though Nanaimo has historically been pretty safe territory for the NDP. Um, they're going to have to work for this seat. I think they realize that, and I think they are doing that. Um, the one poll, that uh, serious poll that was done, showed the NDP um, with a narrow lead. I suspect that the lead was a little stronger than that. It was a relatively small poll with a large margin of error. You know, They could be tied, um, given the margin of error, or the NDP could be out by quite a bit. And uh, a lot of things sort of throwing wrinkles into it, though. The, we thought the speculation tax might help the Liberals, but now the spending scandal might help the NDP or possibly the Greens, or that might turn people off. So it's 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 uncertain um, at this point still, but uh, I still think it's the NDP's to lose. So uh, advanced polling numbers are showing a larger return than the general election. Uh, turnout generally low for a by-election, which makes them an interesting and unpredictable animal. Then there's the other, you know, usual factors sitting governments generally don't do well in a by-election. It offers a chance for uh, voters to lash out. For example, uh, I believe the Chilliwack riding a few years ago, solidly BC Liberal Territory went NDP in a by-election. Things like that. Do do the normal factors uh, sort of factor into this thing, Hamish, or is it this thing is so intense and and so sort of focused that, that we can throw a lot of the old traditional things out the window? Historically, by-elections are pretty meaningless, right? People have the freedom to vote without changing legislative standings. Um, The standings in the legislature are so close that the outcome of this by-election is meaningful, particularly if it goes against the government. Uh, So voters may be taking this more like a normal by-election. But I think what complicates it is the the fairly large field that we have. There are uh, all the parties are running candidates, including the conservatives. um, And we just don't know how the vote splits are going to go. You mentioned um, the the Chilliwack by-election a few years ago that very surprisingly went NDP, um, but there was a strong liberal candidate and a strong conservative candidate, and they split the vote so evenly that it allowed the NDP to come up the middle. Might we see something like that with perhaps the Greens performing strongly and siphoning votes away from the NDP, allowing the liberals to take a, a traditional NDP seat? Who knows? Yeah, and I was in the Chil- I spent all day in that Chilliwack riding uh, on election day, talking to people coming out of election stations and that sort of thing. Uh, and you remember, we, we forget how much of trouble the government's in at the time. They were just in the throes of controversy after controversy. Uh, everybody I talked to coming out of an election station was like, very plainly, we need to teach these guys a lesson. We're voting NDP because we're so sick and tired of what liberals are doing. Do you think that there is an anger against the government in Nanaimo? Do you get any feeling on that front that would, you know, sort of fuel? A, a lashing out from the voters or no? Hard for me to judge that not being on the island. Um, <clears throat> again, this has been 
fairly traditional NDP territory. I think they have lost, the NDP has lost that riding twice in 15 elections. So this is very solid NDP country, and for the first time in a generation, we have an NDP government, uh, notwithstanding mistakes that the government has made. Um, I suspect traditional NDP voters in Nanaimo are going to be uh, not at the point where they're willing to throw out an NDP government, um, even if they have some dissatisfaction. The big, I think, sort of unknown here is how the spending scandal may play out in this election, if it has any impact at all. My sense is that these kind of scandals turn voters off the political process entirely. They just sort of view it as a pox on all their houses. Um, There's more evidence in the minds of many voters that our political system is, is corrupt. And if it does depress turnout, that just makes predicting the outcome here all the more difficult. Okay, let's talk about that spending scandal, because we've seen details out of the legislature, unlike we've ever seen anything before, usually a body that is pretty strict. You can't even file a Freedom of Information request into that building. Um, Your thought as you see this thing, and it's still unfolding as we speak? Well, this is it, right? Um, And and it seems to have gone in waves. Um, Mr. Plekis back last year, at the end of the year, raised concerns, brought in the House leaders. They were duly concerned. Um, The House voted unanimously to suspend the clerk and the sergeant-at-arms. Then within a matter of days, people were calling into question the Speaker's uh, credibility and his judgment. Um, Now the Speaker has issued a 76-page report documenting some of his concerns. He evidently has more concerns that he's not revealed to us. Um, and public opinion has swung completely the other way, um, that, that he now seems to be a person of impeccable judgment. Uh, he's documented all the evidence here. Well, I think later this week or by next week, we should have the response from the clerk and the sergeant of arms who continue to maintain that they've done absolutely nothing wrong. And, and we'll see if there's another swing of the pendulum once they've responded to these allegations. Yeah, I think it's an overcorrection. I think too many people these days try and jam a, a round peg into a square hole, be it black or white. We forget about the shades of gray out there. Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, do you, I mean, do you see anything in there that would be charge-worthy or that would sort of elevate this past a, oh, loosey-goosey rules, we're going to tighten those up, and that's the end of that? I didn't see, I'm not a lawyer, um, but my reading of, of the document was no. Um, there was certainly activity uh, there that you know would constitute um, misappropriation of, of funds, and that might require these individuals to pay funds back, might require further workplace discipline, uh, including termination. I didn't see anything that would amount to criminal in there, um, but there, there are charges like breach of trust. You know, maybe uh, the police might see that um, while while they didn't fraudulently claim the money, they 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 were misusing it, and that's a breach of trust. Um, but uh, Daryl Plakis and his associate, his assistant Alan Mullen, have indicated that there are perhaps other matters that didn't make it into the report that might be of a criminal nature, and that's perhaps what the police are looking into. Yeah, we're we're out of time, but I do want to ask this real quick. So, if you could make the answer as short as possible, but. Um, Daryl Plekis uh, was something in trouble in Abbotsford. Uh, there's a recall effort that keeps, you know, nothing filed yet, but something out there whispered they could start. It, does this help him or, or, or no? It's another distraction for him, and it certainly doesn't help him, but recalled campaigns in British Columbia are notoriously difficult. Um, and uh, with the speaker sort of bringing these issues up, uh, I think that's bought him quite a bit of credibility in the public, public including his own writing. Hamish, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir.
Thank you, Shane. And that's Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Fraser Valley, Hamish Telford. We'll talk about wildfires when the Woodford, uh, Woodford Show returns after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Well, it might not feel much like it out there right now, but it is wintertime. But uh, as each day passes, we creep ever closer to summer after two uh, consecutive historic wildfire seasons. We're soon going to f- see what uh, 2019 has in store for us. Uh, my next guest on the program uh, is talking about fire-induced storms. We'll get into exactly what that is in a second here, but uh, let me introduce uh, Ed Struzek, who's a Canadian author, photographer, guy behind how wildfires will shape our future. Ed, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Okay, man. So uh, we're aware that uh, wildfires do tend to, to mess with the weather and can create their own sort of systems. But apparently um, what we're seeing out there now uh, from 2017, 2018, and not only here in British Columbia, but uh, around the world is something that is um, far more intense and far more robust as far as its impacts than we've seen before. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, we're seeing these pyro CBs, which are, are essentially a thunderstorm created by a very intense wildfire. And some of them, like the ones you had in, in British Columbia, the cluster you had in British Columbia in 2017, which described by scientists at NASA and the U.S. Naval Defense Lab as uh, the mother of all pyro CBs, have as much energy as a moderate-sized volcano. And we're starting to see these uh, events now happening in clusters and in places such as Texas and Portugal, South Africa, Argentina, uh, Western Russia, where we've never seen them before. What does what do they mean? Like, what's the impact? I mean, obviously uh, of concern here. Uh, but as we look at these things and try and get our heads wrapped around them, what's the impact? Well, there's two impacts. One is that uh, you know it, it it makes it's it's a bit of a nightmare for uh, wildfire firefighters because you really can't extinguish a pyro CB with any kind of traditional method. You basically got to stand back, get everything out of the air, and then just hope for the best. Because when they collapse, uh, when the plume collapses. Uh, it just sends, uh, creates winds that, uh, you know, almost reach the speed of tornadoes, and uh, they can shoot embers out up to five kilometers away. Um, and they also produce uh, a lot of lightning. The, uh, the uh, Fort McMurray fire uh, created a pyro CB that shot out lightning 35 kilometers in advance of the fire front and uh, ignited a cluster of fires that far away. No one has seen anything quite like that. So quite obviously, there is a new normal on the landscape for wildfire fighters, and that's that that I think is 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 creating big challenges for them. The second thing is is if you think of a, of, of moderate sized volcanoes uh, such as Pinatubo, which was was pretty big in 1991, that can actually change global temperatures. You know, on average, it uh, it uh, reduced temperatures by one degree. It uh, was much more intense in the Arctic and resulted in a lot of uh, 
failure of nesting birds up that far because it was so cold. It was a year summer really didn't come to the Arctic. So it can create these short-term, regional, and even possibly global climate and weather patterns. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. I mean, you have uh, a storm, uh, and for example, we saw one of these apparently on August 12th uh, in the uh, in the historic wildfire season we had here in 2017, uh, right close to us here in Kamloops where one of these events occurred. But you have a thing that's essentially like a fire tornado. It's sparking out lightning, creating fires elsewhere. I mean, the whole dynamic sounds terrifying, but how do you fight a fire like that? You obviously can't insert firefighters into the ground unless you really want to lose a lot of them. And then you've got lightning strikes that are now along the periphery, and even even greater distances sparking new wildfires so do we need a complete rethink in how we tackle something like this i think we i think we do and i think that uh, we're beginning to do it but we're not uh, investing enough in it uh, obviously uh you know piracy bees are one of a number of things that are challenging traditional wildfire fighting methods and i think what we need now is real-time weather forecasting uh on fire fronts to help perhaps uh fire managers move resources uh, in and out of areas uh, so that they can maybe protect their firefighters on the front front lines better uh, or be able to tackle firefighters, you know, have the equipment and the resources there before a fire, fire reaches the intensity that it will create a pyro CB. We're not very good at doing that right now. In fact, we we don't have any prediction abilities for uh, pyro CBs. It's basically a guessing game right now, and I think that that's where the investment's got to come, uh, and we're just not doing that uh, well enough right now here in, in Canada. Just understanding the whole phenomenon, you mean? Yeah, we've, yeah. We've, 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 got, we've got to invest in, in, in tools which will help uh, wildfire fighters predict these things a lot more quickly than we can right now. Uh, there are some models that the University of Alberta is working on, uh, but we're just, you know, as, as, as uh, on a federal level, we really haven't made wildfire a priority yet. We're really good at, you know, doling out compensation for victims of, of wildfire, uh, wildfire and communities that are affected by fi- wildfire. And we're very good at evacuating people, uh, First Nations people, uh, and putting them up in hotels. And that's well and good. We need to be able to do that. But I think what we, we have to do is be more proactive in being able to adapt to this new normal that we're seeing unfold every year. It's not really normal because I think the model right now is expect the unexpected. Is there a concern that we could see one of these events to the size and scale that is just completely like nothing we've seen before and that could cause its own catastrophe and going through a populated area or just moving so fast? I remember uh, news stories from years ago in Australia uh, where one of those fires fueled by wind and all sorts of things must have created something similar, but it was moving at a speed that was astounding, catching people as they were fleeing down the highway in their vehicles. Could we? Are, are, is this a worry that we could see an evolution of this to the scale that, oh my God, we cannot believe we just lost, you know, whatever well that was a canberra fire that you're talking about in 2003 in australia and that created its own f2 tornado and it killed you know a lot of people and injured a lot of people and a tremendous tremendous amount of damage uh there's no reason to think that uh it's not going to happen here in canada that came very close to happening in fort mcmurray in 2017 and 2018 a lot of the more populated areas of of bc are just dodging the bullet 
because as you say, you know, what if it happens a little bit closer to Kelowna or to Prince George or, or Kamloops? Uh, you know, these are fairly big centers, and they're, you know, places that get very hot and very dry in the summertime. And we do have a cluster of pyro CBs that occur closer to a populated area. Um, I think, you know, this is, a, this, this is the kind of thing that I know wildfire managers are talking about. In fact, I'm heading off to Portland, Maine, to talk to the Northeastern Fire Group. Uh, and this, uh, you know, these are topics of discussion now among wildfire fighters, is that we're seeing things out there that we haven't really seen uh, before, at least in the, uh, on the intensity levels that we're seeing. And so how do we deal with it? Uh, the other thing, too, is uh, as far as a global impact, uh, we're seeing these things kind of create a tower. They punch stuff way up into the atmosphere, and then it puts uh, carbon, all sorts of crazy stuff up in the atmosphere, and that sifts around, and then eventually, you know, what goes up must come down, but it generally doesn't come down the same place it goes up. Uh, obviously, not much we can do there, but uh, are we going to start seeing more global impacts from that? The, you know, a big fire here, suddenly it's causing a huge effect uh, somewhere else in the world or vice versa. Yeah, I think so on a number of different fronts. You know, the 2017 pyro CBs in, B, in BC, you know, they were detected all the way up to a, a high Arctic research station, which was, I think, you know, 700 kilometers south of the North Pole. And they were detecting ammonia and nitric oxide and other compounds that, you know, they would not normally see in that part of the world. Now, that's not going to have a huge impact on 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 human health or the environment there but you start getting this ash and this black carbon now falling on glaciers that's going to speed up the retreat of the glaciers that we're already seeing now because you know there's a lot more darkness on it to absorb absorb the sunlight but i think the other big thing is that we're going to see this black carbon and all of these compounds and you know remember the smoke from a wildfire pretty much has as many of the same ingredients as as you find in tobacco smoke and it's just not healthy. And this, you know, we, you know, I live in Alberta, and we didn't have a lot of fires this year, but in the last two years, or, 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 or the last two years, but we really got a lot of smoke from B.C. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was apocalyptic here at times because of the smoke that was traveling that far. So what happens in B.C. doesn't just stay in B.C. Uh, it can travel a long way. Yeah, and the wildfire smoke's a whole uh, other ball of wax. I read an interesting report out of University in, in California talking about how uh, how wildfire smoke and the carcinogens and stuff uh, can be a whole other devil to deal with and the amount of deaths in the United States they're seeing from that. So I think that's another factor that we need to start thinking about. Uh, I guess uh, just uh, with a final minute or so with you here, as far as, okay, we, we're seeing this phenomenon, we're, we're trying to get our heads wrapped around it. In your mind, next steps, what, what do we do? I think, you know, number one, we've just got to invest a lot more in wildfire science and the technology we need to be able to deal with these fires. I think that's really the big thing. I think the other thing is that, uh, yeah, I mean, you know it, you've, you, you know, the way the way our conversation going, you know as much about it as I do. I mean, you're keeping on top of it, and you know that you know we've got to maybe have better building codes in place, uh, fire smarting communities a lot more quickly than we are right now. 
uh, you know, maybe perhaps creating uh, community centers that are equipped with air filters so that the the elderly that may have respiratory problems can go to, you know, on days where the fire, the smoke from the fire is so intense. I mean, there's a long list of things that we can do that we are doing, but I don't think we're doing fast enough, largely because the investment just isn't there yet. Interesting and uh, slightly terrifying. Ed, thanks for taking some time. Really appreciate the insight. It was good talking to you. Thank you. Okay, there we go. Ed Struzik, who's a Canadian author, photographer, guy behind uh, How Wildfires Will Shape Our Future, talking about fire-induced storms and some terrifying stuff there. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to talk about the collaborative economy and learn a little bit about that. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The Woodford Show, a real pleasure to welcome to the show from Transition Kamloops, Jennifer St. Marie. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Uh, Okay, so um, A New Economy, which is an interesting film uh, coming up in the Films for Change screening. Tell me a little bit about A New Economy. What's it about? Uh, it's uh, about uh, various entrepreneurs, mostly in Canada, who are trying to do things a little bit differently. They're trying to um, include not just the bottom line, but a concern for the environment and for people as well. And, uh, yeah, just trying to work more collaboratively and putting people at the, the, the um, base of the whole enterprise. Yeah, I was struck by uh, watching the trailer. I haven't had a chance to see the whole film yet, although it looks really interesting. Uh, This quote from one of the experts on there saying, essentially what you're trying to do from an economic perspective is swap the engines out on an airplane while also keeping the airplane in the air. So uh, is that an apt sort of description as trying this this shift to what's called a collaborative economy in this film? Uh, Yeah, I'd say that's a really good example of um, what's trying to be done. Um, It is like... I think we realize that something needs to change and we are hoping that everything doesn't collapse before we realize that. So swapping the engines out while the plane's in the air is an analogy. (laughs) Well, hopefully the plane doesn't crash. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the groups that are in here. I know locally the the Soul Food Street Farms uh, Cooperative down in the Lower Mainland in Vancouver, Uh, I think the most local of of the sort of featured businesses. Right. Um, there's also a cooperative brewery that's been um, going for a few years in London, Ontario, and another fellow who's trying to do some open source um, technology in Montreal. Uh, the farm you mentioned in Vancouver. There's one from San Francisco, I think, as well. Interesting. So uh, where, can, uh, where can people from Kamloops get a chance to sit down? I understand there's a bit of an event and a chance to see uh, a version of the film and then uh, have a little bit of a chat afterwards. That's right. On Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, January 30th, at the True Alumni Clock Tower, we'll be opening the doors at 6.30 and the show will start at 7. And we have an um, educational version, which is a bit shorter, to allow us more time for a panel discussion. We have four great panelists coming. And we're hoping that people will be coming ready to discuss and maybe even join us in uh, some efforts afterwards in getting a sort of an interest group together to discuss our options here in Kamloops. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, options as in, as in sort of starting a different collaborative business or businesses? Yeah, all sorts of different things related to the economy. Oh, that's really interesting. So how do you how do you anticipate that unfolding? Do you anticipate there'll be a bunch of interest and people that potentially would come with some ideas in hand? Or? 
Right. Well, we're going to have a sign-up sheet for anyone who's interested. We have actually had a little bit of an interest group for about a year. And um, we are hoping people might, um, at the film, on the at the event, write down their ideas on a sort of a little post-it note we're going to give them and put it on the um, uh, piece of paper as they walk out to give us a bunch of starting points. <laughs> Interesting. So not just a film, but perhaps a launching pad as well. Uh, tell me, what's, what's the benefit of a collaborative economy? I mean, obviously, uh, we have sort of a capitalist bend to what we're doing now. It's basically all about finding an idea that goes out there and sells some stuff and, and returns a profit. What's the difference between that and a collaborative economy? Um, well, a collaborative economy or a triple bottom line enterprise looks at not just the profit, but also the economic justice, the part about the people and the environment. And so we look at governance and, um, you know, the social responsibilities of that um, business, all those different things. And um, there's quite a bit of interest in bringing more local investment as well. So. It's easier to collaborate and see what's happening locally. Like you don't really know what your your invested dollars are doing around the world, right? But if we can invest more locally, then we can see what's happening. Yeah, that's definitely true. I note uh, in in sort of a, a summary at the end of this press release here, it talks about uh, what you said: local economy, healthy ecosystems, grassroots community building while reducing our dependence on fossil fuels, uh, more sustainable way of life. Are, are those things necessities in whatever collaborative business might spring out of this particular focus group or any collaborative economy uh, sort of? I would business? I would think so. Yeah, I think that's what we're he- what we need to head for. And do you see these as, as a network of small businesses? Is there a chance for sort of a collaborative economy-based large global sort of business, or is it just a cooperative of small ones? Well, you can, um, you can, as long as you're looking after your local economy, I think that's going to affect the rest of the economies, right? So um, I see that there are already um, cooperative large enterprises like national cooperatives that are operating. In fact, there's some parts of the world, particularly in northern Italy and Spain, where there are major parts of the economy that are collaborative. Interesting. Uh, You've got a Facebook group, obviously, and you mentioned this has been uh, sort of going on for a little while now here in Kamloops. Um, What's the level of interest sort of locally? Is Is it a handful of people? Is it a larger dynamic than that? In the local economy interest group? Yeah, just sort of, I mean, you're obviously working in this particular area and have sort of an antenna here. Is it? Is there a bunch of people in the, in the community that are interested in this or, or no? Um, well, so far we've been a smaller group that's trying to educate ourselves. And so now we're sort of bringing that education out to the general public with the film and the discussion. And we'll see who, you know, yeah. worth and Transition Kamloops is not just about the economy. We do other things. I think you might have heard of the Repair Cafe coming up in February right. as well. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, it's funny. When I think about doing a business, I think about, you know, sort of a very sort of corporate line about, okay, I got to get some capital. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to put together a business plan. Uh, are all those sort of relevant to this or is there more of a, I don't know, like a personal bend? You know, I think we can, you know, maybe I'm driven by farming or maybe I'm maybe like these gentlemen in London, I'm, I'm, I really want to do something around beer. Is it just more personal rather than corporate? Um, well, I think it can expand to whatever you're interested in or whatever sort of uh, direction it starts going, but you still need to have a business model. You still need to do things, you know, properly and not just think that, oh, because I'm doing this collaborative, it's go- collaboratively, it's going to work. You have to have um, a good plan in place. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Uh, it's always good to have a good plan in place. <laughs> uh, expecting a big crowd at the event on the 30th or no? We're hoping for a big crowd. Yeah. It's a pretty important topic. Yeah, no kidding. Why did you, uh, the uh, there's as, I, as you mentioned, there's the educational version. Was it just the time constraint as opposed to seeing this full thing? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. And it's is on Netflix for people who want to take a look at the at the full picture. Yeah. So if people can't make it on uh, this Wednesday at uh, for a seven o'clock showing, then if they want to educate themselves, they should definitely check it out on Netflix. Perfect. Who's on the panel? We have Colin O'Leary and Leslie Lax and Ted Schisler and Bruce Martin. And I think they're all quite interesting with a lot of experience in the area of the uh, economy. So. I think it should be a really lively discussion. Is it just, uh, I assume the crowd can sort of fire some questions at them and stuff like that? Yeah, there'll be an opportunity for the audience to comment or ask questions. Excellent. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I think this is a pretty, I, as I mentioned, I haven't had a chance to see the full film yet, but I did take a peek at the trailer and it, it looked really uh, looked really intriguing. So I yeah. wouldn't mind getting a chance to kind of get a gander at the full thing. Yeah, well. <laughs> well, hopefully you could come out or if you can't then we'll yeah well sounds good uh, Jennifer thanks so much and sorry event details again January 30th where and when at the True Alumni Clock Tower doors open at 6.30 and the show starts at 7 we should be finished by 9 alright sounds good uh, hope it's a full event and uh, I'm, uh, I might come up there and take it in myself Great. All right, Jennifer, have a great day. Right, thank you. That was Jennifer St. Marie from Transition Kamloops. She was discussing the film event Films for Change and the screening of a new economy. It happens January 30th. You heard the details in the interview. And that's it for today's Woodford Show. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow, same time. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Sting